This podcast is an unedited excerpt from a live MCLE webcast. See the episode notes for details about the speakers and links to the program's full video and audio recording. Get access to everything MCLE offers for one low subscription fee with the MCLE Online Pass. Try it for free for a month. Go to www.mcle.org slash online pass. Please note that MCLE's products, services, and communications are offered solely as an aid to developing and maintaining professional competence. The statements in this recording may not apply to your circumstances, and no legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice is being rendered by MCLE or its speakers. For full terms and conditions, see the MCLE website. As Jim said, I've been at the Office of Bar Council for about 20 years, a little bit more now. So I've seen you know, hundreds and hundreds of complaints made by clients against lawyers. And what I'm here to talk about this morning is some of the ways that you can avoid ever being the subject of a complaint by your client against you. And I think we can all agree that um, if your client likes you and feels like they've been treated well, um, that's the first step in, in uh, in preventing them from filing a complaint against you. So here we have three not very happy looking people. So uh, one of the major causes of complaints by clients against lawyers is inadequate communication. Um, the worst cases we see clients try to get in touch with their lawyers for months or even years and get no response whatsoever. Um, and, and we do see a fair of that, amount of that. But generally speaking, to avoid um, any kind of complaints by your clients about uh, not hearing from you, you should respond uh, as much as you can to clients' calls, emails, texts, and letters. Now, we all understand that there are occasional clients who will call you every day, if not three times a day, and obviously nobody expects you to call those people back every single time. But um, think about a reasonable amount of responsiveness if it's you know once a week or once a month, uh, at least the client knows that you are um, there and paying attention to their matter. Keeping notes, of course, is very important. Um, uh, later on, it's possible that a client is gonna say that you said something that you're pretty sure that you never said or never would say. And so um, if you have notes of those conversations, keep them in the file, uh, type them up, put them in the electronic file, um, you're gonna be glad that you did. Staff, if, if you have people working for you, you wanna make sure that they understand the, um, the amount, tone of civility that, that you think they should strike. I mean, obviously we have people of all different you know, ages and nationalities and everything else, and people have differing expectations, but make sure that your staff is trained to be as polite as possible and responsive to people who call because they're responding on your behalf and they represent you. Keep your clients informed of what's going on. Obviously, you know, that doesn't mean every single motion you file or every single time that you work on their case, but it does mean any major thing that's occurred. You know, in the case of litigation, obviously, um, you know, settlement offers, filing, if you filed a complaint, if you've, um, survived a motion to dismiss or motion for summary judgments, um, other important discovery things, 
those are things that the client should be aware of. And always, always convey that you care. I mean, if, if you've taken the case, um, it should mean that you're committed to representing your client in that matter as zealously and as well as you can. And so convey that to the client that you're there to try to get accomplish what they want. Now there's things that the rules require, rules of professional conduct require have to be in writing. And you know, this is sort of a trap for the unwary. Um, because people may feel like, oh, I've known that client for a million years. We don't have to put our fee agreement in writing, but that's not the case. Even if you have uh, you know, a good relationship with the client, or even if you're doing a minor matter that you know, is only gonna require a few hours, if you're charging the client a fee, you need to put it in writing. Um, this is all covered by rule 1.5. And um, I suspect that Jim's gonna talk more about it later, so I don't wanna go into it in, in great detail, but uh, the fee agreement um, you know, should also be given to, I mean, it should be signed if at all possible. These days of everything being emailed, we see a lot that aren't signed and that of course will raise questions later whether the client actually ever agreed to it. So um, best practice is to get it signed, uh, keep it in the file. The rules also require you to, to get a written consent to a conflict of interest. So if you um, perceive a conflict of interest and um, the client agrees to go forward with the representation, um, you must create a writing and that writing should you know, specifically uh, ex explain the conflict to the client as much as possible. You know, um, again, this is stuff that's going to be covered later, but um, it has to be uh, it has to be signed and um, by the client. Another rule requiring uh, a writing is when you when you're holding a retainer or holding any funds for the client in your IELTS account. Um, before you pay yourself a fee from those funds, you must notify the client in writing um, the amount that you're holding, the amount that you're deducting for your fee, uh, the date of the withdrawal, and a statement of the balance of the funds in the account after your fee payment. So you, you may not wait, you can't you know, have, be holding a $10,000 retainer and take out 2000 and then think you'll send the client a bill later. You have to send the bill contemporaneously with the withdrawal. Now here are things that the rules don't require you to put in writing, but it, um, you'll be happy if you did because um, you know, you'll have a record of important matters in the representation. Settlement offers. You wanna make sure that every settlement offer is conveyed to the client. Um, Again, since you're required to convey those settlement offers, it is important that you keep a record of it by conveying it in writing. Um, if a client non-engagement, what I mean by this is if a client comes in with their, um, you know, for instance, a personal injury case and they present you with uh, a box of medical records and you say that you will consider, you know, you're gonna review the records and consider um, representing the client and you decide not to, please put that in writing. Um, oftentimes, or maybe not often, but it's not uncommon um, for a client to think that because they delivered their medical records to a lawyer, that that means that the lawyer is now representing them 
whereas in fact the lawyer may have uh, put the box in the corner somewhere and have not gotten around to even reading them. So um, in, in the situation where this happens, you know, write a letter to the client saying, um, I'm sorry, but I was not able to, I mean, I, I'm not able to represent you and um, return any original documents that the client gave you. If something has gone wrong in a case, if it was dismissed, if you missed the statute of limitations, if uh, there was a judgment against your client, or, or I'm kind of a litigation-oriented person, so I'm thinking all litigation. Um, but tell tell your client about that. We see, you know, not infrequently that um, a client finds out that their case has been dismissed by looking at the docket, the court docket, after the lawyer never told them, probably because of embarrassment or. Um, well, let's stick with embarrassment. Um, the lawyer never told them that the case had been dismissed. And you can imagine that um, that's a pretty upsetting thing for a client. It will probably lead to a malpractice claim and will probably lead to a complaint to us. Major case developments, um, the same. And also uh, discovery requests if you know, your client you send in interrogatories to your client to, to do a draft of the answers. Um, put that in writing because if the client drags their feet and you wind up with a motion to compel or, or you know, something like that, um, you're going to be, uh, you know, well advised to have a record of the fact that you did send the discovery to the client and you did uh, re request a response. So beyond um, lack of communication, a very common source of complaints against lawyers by their clients, of course, is lack of diligence. And uh, lack of diligence can be the can result from many different things, including lawyers obviously being too busy and overwhelmed and not getting to a client's case, or lawyers who just have a tendency to procrastinate, or maybe they've taken a case that, um, you know, they've just they decide uh, later on, they wish they hadn't taken, um, but for many reasons, uh, lawyers may wind up not doing everything that they promised for the client or not doing what they had to do to uh, complete the representation. So um, as is often the case in life, it's bad to overpromise. Um, if you underpromise a little bit and exceed what you promised to do, people are gonna be happy. Um, don't agree to do things that you know you don't have time to do, or you know you don't have the capacity to do, or you don't feel comfortable doing. Um, say what you're going to do. Uh, don't wait to the last minute. Don't always, you know, do things. And just as file the complaint right before the statute of limitation expires, or uh, you know, file the brief that's due uh, today at 11:59 tonight. Um, all those things are going to get you in trouble. Use your tickler systems religiously. You know, if you have a lot of cases, obviously it's very hard to keep track of the deadlines on all the cases. And if you can't meet a deadline, timely seek an extension or continuance. Again, I think it's important to, to know what kind of, by the time we're lawyers, we should have some idea of what kind of people we are and what our habits are, our bad habits and our good habits. 
And so if you know that you're a person who, you know, tends to overpromise or tends to procrastinate, you know, those are issues that frankly, you're going to have to work on if you're going to be a successful lawyer. Um, clients often complain uh, because they think uh, a lawyer is still representing them and the lawyer is no longer representing them. And of course, that should never happen. If you, if you terminate a representation, you should do it very clearly um, in writing to the client, make sure the client gets it, discuss it with the client if necessary. There should never be any ambiguity about whether or not you are representing a client at any moment. Um, the rules are fairly liberal, and this is rule 1.16 about when you can terminate a representation. And generally speaking, you can do it um, at any time if it will not have a material adverse effect on the client. So that means you, you know, you don't do it a week before the trial. Um, you know, you don't do it, uh, you know, having 90% completed the estate documents, but not having completed them. You know, you, you, you can't leave the client high and dry, obviously, but if a representation isn't working out, um, you and the client don't see eye to eye, the client isn't paying you, um, you know, or you just, or for instance, you leave private practice to go work for a public agency, obviously all of those are, are valid reasons for terminating a representation. When you do so, um, uh, put the file together, um, and I'll discuss that a little bit later with this um, a very specific rule 1.15a about the client file. Um, if you owe the client a refund, um, send that send them the refund immediately. Um, refund any yeah any unearned retainer funds. If there's a if the client owes you money, you can send out a final bill. Um, obviously, if the case is in court, you can't just leave. You have to file a motion to withdraw and get the court's permission. And we understand that sometimes the court doesn't grant permission and lawyers do get stuck in cases. And that's uh, just the way it is. As we all know, as lawyers, we have uh, a very sacred duty not to disclose our clients' confidences. And um, it's important to remember that confidential information, uh, which is governed by rule 1.6, has a very broad definition. It's not just uh, necessarily things that your client has told you in confidence. It's not just attorney-client protected information. It's broader than that. And the rule defines it as information gained during or relating to the representation of the client, no matter what its source, that is either protected by the attorney-client privilege or likely to be detrimental or embarrassing if the client to the client if disclosed. So, um, for instance, we, we had a case recently where uh, a lawyer, after the representation was over, um, decided for some reason to inform the court that the, or yeah, to inform the court that the client had been arrested a couple of times in the, in the last year for shoplifting and possession of, of narcotics, et cetera. And um, even though that wasn't information that the lawyer had gotten from the client, uh, we did charge him with a violation of 1.16 because, you know, 
strongly appear that he was using information that he uh, was aware of through the representation, although not directly through the representation, um, basically just to embarrass uh, or, or to hurt the client. Now, we lost that case for reasons that um, are, are pretty technical, but, but the bottom line is you have to be very careful about anything you disclose about the client that could be detrimental or embarrassing. Um, a lot of uh, 1.6 cases these days derive from social media, uh, lawyers who say something about a client on um, Facebook or on a blog or uh, you know some other social media medium. It's you know it's a, a medium that um, you know is easy to misshare on because you know it seems to be you know very um, kind of separate from from your your work as a lawyer, but um, even if you're disclosing information in which you don't even if you're not specifically identifying a lawyer, if you give enough identifying details that other people might be able to recognize the, the identity of the client that you're talking about, um, you have probably violated 1.16. Uh, another troublesome area is when clients um, give bad reviews to lawyers on, on one of those um, websites and the lawyer, of course, feels very tempted to respond by saying, oh, you know, the client was a complete jerk, the client lied to me, the client this, that, you know, don't do that, just don't do that. I mean, even though you might have some defense in those situations, basically, it's not worth getting in trouble for uh, posting a nasty response on the internet. If you've got to respond, you know, you can say something like, you know, the client and I didn't see eye to eye and, um, you know, I invite the client to discuss it with me privately or something like that. Um, another source of many complaints to the office, as you can imagine, is failure to identify and avoid conflicts. Um, this starts perhaps by not um, appropriately identifying who your client is at the outset of the representation. For instance, if uh, a, um, you know, an elderly person comes in with their son or daughter and wants an estate plan, you know, you need to be very careful about um, understanding that the client is the person for whom you are going to do the estate plan, not the son or daughter who uh, would like to tell you what they think their mother wants. And I think Jim already hinted that he's going to be talking a lot about this lately, uh, later. You need to collect sufficient information from your prospective client to check for conflicts, and that's more than their name. It probably is, you know, the name of any um, of of uh, any business that they are operating. Maybe they're, you know, the sole owner of a corporation. Uh, you want to know that name. You want to know the names of of their spouse. Um, any other names at which they, you know, ever went under, like a maiden name. So um, you need as much information as possible to make sure that you don't have a conflict. You also need to consider whether you have a personal conflict of interest. For instance, are you considering um, going into some kind of a business uh, relationship with a client or 
uh, is the client. Um, trying to think of other. You know, you might be uh, the, the entity that the client wants to, uh, will be the opposing party, might be an entity that you have some interest in, or maybe you're on the board of, or, um, you know, otherwise have a relationship with. So explore any ways in which your own interests could conflict with those of the client. Non-compliant alter record keeping. As hopefully you're all aware, um, there's very strict rules for how you maintain your IOLTA funds um, in an IOLTA bank account. The people in my in our office who handle these kinds of matters are, are always surprised by how many people say that they don't understand the rules or they didn't know there was rules. I mean, these rules are technical and if you're going to have an IOLTA account, you really need to study them. You should probably, um, if you haven't done so already, uh, consult with the bookkeeper or take a, a class. And we, we offer a free class uh, specifically designed to instruct you how to keep the records. The, the idea of IOLTA record keeping is that, you know, if you have $20,000 in your IOLTA account, you need to know exactly how much you are holding for every client who, who you hold money for. That, that is the goal of, of the record keeping that you're gonna do. So if, if you look at your account and you don't know um, who the owner is of every cent, um, you are not doing it properly. And that includes, of course, your own, you may have some of your own money in there, which you put in to cover bank fees, which is permissible. And you also need to know uh, how much you're holding for yourself. You've got to do the three-way reconciliations every 60 days, which, and then that means three-way. And again, many lawyers don't understand what the three components are, um, but the three components are your bank records, your individual client ledgers, and your, um, your bank, your, um, your, chronological check register. And I can't go into it now in detail, but those three numbers have to match every month. And if they don't, you need to go back and, and figure out where the discrepancies lie. We see many cases every year uh, where lawyers make some kind of a misrepresentation to the court and or to opposing counsel or, or to some other party. Any misrepresentation to the court is going to get you in serious trouble. These are cases in which there is a minimum one-year suspension um, if bar counsel is able to prove that you intentionally made a misrepresentation to the court. So I can't tell you, uh, can't emphasize enough how important it is to make sure that everything that you say to the court is true and that you're not misleading by omitting important information. Um, obviously, you don't have to tell the court everything, but you can't um, present facts in such a way that you know the court is going to get the wrong idea. If you um, if you file an affidavit with the court or, or anything under oath, 
on misrepresentation and those kind of cases can get you two years. So again, you know, to be extremely cautious about um, anything that you say under oath, whether that be in uh, an affidavit, a, a, a verified pleading, a deposition, um, any other document. Now, not only can you yourself not make misrepresentations to the court, but you cannot uh, allow, knowingly allow your clients to make misrepresentations to the court. If your clients do make misrepresentations, particularly, you know, under oath at a trial, you have a um, total obligation to, to somehow try to remedy that misrepresentation. So you need to understand what that means, and that's all covered by Rule 3.3 A3. Um, it may it may involve trying to talk the client into uh, correcting their statement. It may involve withdrawing from the representation, but um, you do have to take action in that circumstance. I think this is my last topic. Um, all in all, you know, we we see a lot of lawyers getting in trouble just for you know being being rude, um, losing their temper, um, engaging in other kind of you know unprofessional you know saying things that have sexist or racist or uh, prejudice you know against certain ethnicities. That is now a specific violation um, of the rule, um, the new rule 4.4, yeah. So, uh, I mean, it's just common sense that you wanna be respectful and pleasant to your clients and uh, you wanna be respectful and civil uh, as much as humanly possible to everybody that you come across in the course of representing clients, and that includes, of course, opposing counsel, court personnel, et cetera. There was a, a study done years ago of, of doctors and malpractice actions, and what the study determined was that clients um, were much, much more likely to bring a malpractice action against the doctor, whether or not they're actually turned out to be malpractice, if they perceive that the doctor didn't care or, or was was rude to them or uh, you know off-putting. So uh, maintaining good relations with everybody is probably one of the most important things you can do to avoid ever getting uh, coming before us. <laughs> I just will end by saying, um, you know, we get a lot of complaints against lawyers and some are valid and some are not valid. And we wind up closing many and we wind up disciplining lawyers in many. But no matter what happens, it's a pain. You know, you're going to have to uh, respond to our letter um, uh, asking about what happened, you know, going through what the client says and what really happened. Um, you you may have to do a statement under oath. You may have to produce all sorts of documents relating to the client. You know, and all these things are time consuming, and uh, you can't get paid for them. So, 
you know, I think of, and, and you'd be surprised at how many attorneys out there have dozens of complaints against them, uh, while the vast majority of attorneys have no complaints against them. So if you want to save yourself time, effort, money, et cetera, uh, you do the work up front uh, to, you know, be diligent, competent, maintain good relationships with your client, be aware of conflicts of interest, and avoid ever getting in the situation um, of being before us. Thank you. I think that's my last screen. Yes. Thanks, Dorsey. Jim, are we going to jump right into mine? Yep. All right. And there is one question, I think, uh, up, which is just uh, whether we're going to discuss accepting credit card payments for retainer fees. And I think that that's probably in the dialing for dollars portion. Agree. Okay. So we will get to that. Um, and we'll also do a little bit more, um, a very quick version of the IOLTA accounting program at the end of the day, but it's going to be a shortened version of what we do, uh, during the, uh, during our monthly, uh, IOLTA, uh, training session. So it'll be quick and, uh, we invite you to, uh, come to our website and see where our next full IOLTA training, um, program is. Uh, later in the month, and we do that with a number of people. Um, so let me see if I can share my screen. Dorothy's still sharing. Oh, really? I just took it down. Yeah. Great. Thanks. <laughs> 